this November when we go to the polls. No, in this election and every election, it's about who will have the power to shape our children for the next four or eight years of their lives. Hi, my name is Manny Acutiel, and I am here on a big lavender couch in the middle of Dolores Park, my favorite part of San Francisco, and we are bringing Manny's live to the outdoors, to the parks. And today I'm so excited to be in conversation with one of my personal sheroes, Professor Hadar Aviram. She is a professor of law at the UC Hastings College of the Law, also a criminal justice reform activist and advocate, and also a friend of Manny's and has spoken many times about the Mueller report. Uh, and she recently came out with her new book, Yesterday's Monsters. And today we're gonna talk about the COVID-19 outbreak in San Quentin Prison. 10 prisoners have died uh, as of this morning at San Quentin Prison. 1,899 prisoners have tested positive, 694 in the last two weeks alone. We have an outbreak on our hands here in California, and we're gonna talk today about what's happening in this prison right in our backyard, and also how California is planning to handle this outbreak in our prisons, and what it means to us and you, and what it represents for Californians and all the things that we represent here in the state. So, Thank you so much for tuning in, and now we're going to get to our conversation about this outbreak in the San Quentin prison. Thank you. Okay, I'm joined here by Professor Hadar Aviram from UC Hastings. Professor Aviram, can you just first give us a little bit of context to who you are and your involvement in this issue so we know who we're talking to? Sure. I'm a law professor at UC Hastings. I teach criminal justice, I teach corrections, I study what happens in prisons. And I've gotten involved with a coalition trying to stop the outbreak at San Quentin Prison and to try and stop the entire correctional system from becoming a mass grave. A uh, few days ago, I authored an open letter to Governor Newsom asking him to release prisoners, which is signed by criminal justice scholars. At this point, we have 500 folks signed up wow. and was one of the organizers of a recent press conference that happened just before Newsom announced more prison releases. Does this coalition of organizers have a name or a group name or is it just a loose affiliation of folks? Hashtag Stop San Quentin Outbreak. Hashtag Stop San Quentin Outbreak. Do you hear that? Break. Okay, so San Quentin Prison. Who, what kind of prisoners are in San Quentin and where is it? San Quentin is located in Marin County. It's not far from the Richmond Bridge. It's a prison that, has, that houses around 4,000 people, a little more than 4,000. Mm -hmm. It's designed to hold 2,800, so it's at about 120% capacity. And it largely houses people that are there for long term, so people that are doing life sentences, life with parole, life without parole. And it's also home to the country's largest death row with 750 people. So sorry, there's an ice cream cart in the back. So if you want some ice cream, now would be a good time to I'm get good. it. We are in Dolores Park, so lots I'm of good. things are happening. Someone's smoking weed right next to us. So, you know, all sorts of fun to be had. 750 people on death row, 4,800 inmates, even though the capacity is 2,000. And is this a certain type of crime committed to be in the St. Quentin prison? Lots of different crimes. Uh, one of the things that's more characteristic of Quentin than on other places is that they have a higher percentage of older people. So, so close people. to 50% of the people in prison are folks aged 50 and older. Is there a specific reason for that or? People serving longer sentences, they've been decades in prison and they've aged. Yeah. So, okay, I have some stats here. Two more prisoners have died in San Quentin, so that's a total of nine. Uh, people have died from COVID from San Quentin. There's 1,899 confirmed cases in the prison, so that's out of 4,800 people, so that's almost half. Uh, 694 reported in the last two weeks, and more than 200 prison staff has it. 
Um, and across the state, there's 2358 people in custody who have it. So that means that almost all the people in our state prisons that have COVID are coming from one prison for the most part. Is well, that right I should say, we have a higher number of overall people infected in prisons. Overall, we have more than 6,000 people in our prison system that have been infected. It's just that some people have improved. Some people are regarded as resolved by I the see. prison system. I see. And we've also had a few dozen deaths. A few dozen deaths. So why has this outbreak happened at San Quentin prison? Why are there 2,000 people who are confirmed to have COVID in one prison? So, so this is a long story and it has lots of reasons, but the most direct uh, cause for this is a botched transfer from Chino. There was a big outbreak at a and prison Chino in Chino. Is Chino is uh, I mean I know, but just for the people that I want to say I want to say Riverside County. No, it's, it's Central Cal. Cent so. No, it's it's Central Valley. Central Valley. So yeah. so there was a big infection in Chino and they transferred 100 something people without testing them and quarantining them on both sides. Mm -hmm. People came in, they were already infected and almost overnight we started seeing infections rise in San Quentin. I should point out that after this happened and it was exposed by Chronicle writers, they did the same thing from San Quentin to a prison in Susanville, which now has a similar outbreak. They brought people from Chino. From Quentin, from Quentin to Susanville, to Susanville doing the exact same thing. And were they not testing these, these prisoners that were going from Chino to San Quentin? So it's still unclear what happened. Either they didn't test them at all, or they only tested them coming out and never tested them coming in. And who's responsible for testing prisoners in our state? That's another question that's still a little bit nebulous. The whole issue is run, by, of course, by, by the medical system in prisons, and the entire healthcare system in prisons in California is not actually run by the state, it's run by a federal receiver. It okay. was taken out of the state's hands 15 years ago because the state was just not providing outcomes and people were dying every few days. So, so the so feds the are running the the, uh, the healthcare system. Through like the CDC or the NIH or who? It's its own thing. The federal receivership is its own thing. It's a federal agency. It doesn't answer to the state prisons, but they work together with the state prisons to provide this. A lot of I the see. services are privatized. Okay, so we are moving people from Chino due to overcrowding into a prison that already is at capacity? Why did they move people to San Quentin? Okay. This is another thing that's important to understand is that San Quentin is not unique in the sense that it's overcrowded. Almost all the prisons in California are overcrowded. Right. 26 of our 36 prisons are overcrowded and 19 of them are overcrowded above 120% capacity. Didn't so Arnold Schwarzenegger say that was not allowed anymore? Didn't he pass some kind of bill that, that stopped that? So, so this, is, this is an interesting story. There was litigation going on for decades about this because the healthcare outcomes were directly tied to the fact that there were so many people, it was impossible to treat them. There were lines, people were waiting for years to see a doctor. Right. Eventually, the court issued, a federal panel issued an order to decarcerate the prisons. Basically what they said, and this is kind of a political compromise, is you have to bring down the, the overcrowding in California prisons from 200% capacity, which was what we had in, in uh, 2007, 2008, you have to bring it down to 137.5%. Now that's a percentage for the entire state, that's not per prison. So basically what we did in response to that, what the state did was the state worked to move as many people out of prisons and into county jails. Okay. So all the people that were convicted of non-serious, non-violent, non-sexual offenses were shifted over to county jails to bring the population down. Which is, so out of the state prison system into county into jails. Into the county jails, exactly. Okay. Right. Now, 
At some point, they hit the benchmark that for the entire system, the percentage was under 137.5. But that was just the average. There were still prisons that were almost as overcrowded as before, whereas there were some prisons that managed to decrease the overcrowding more. So there's actually quite a range. I see. So there was a range um, of different prisons that were either like not so overcrowded to very overcrowded to seriously overcrowded. And then that brings us into this COVID crisis. And so the reason that they moved people from Chino into San Quentin was to reduce overcrowding in the Chino prison? Either that, it's unclear why they did it exactly, it was either that or some misguided effort to manage the pandemic somehow. Okay. It's unclear whether they were doing it against instructions from the governor or whether there was instruction from the governor. So okay. a lot of this is still nebulous. Okay. Um, and now the story broke a couple weeks ago that there were people in San Quentin that had it. Can you tell us about the development of this story and, and how it kind of brought us to the press conference that you led a couple of days ago? So the story broke at some point, but at that point there were already dozens of people infected. Dozens. People on the inside were beginning to call their families and beginning to tell them what was going on. And they basically told uh, their loved ones that there was no social distancing to speak of because there's nowhere to do social distancing. And that people on death row were beginning to get infected. Now this is important to point out because on death row people are single celled. So it's a single person to a cell. And if under these conditions you're getting the epidemic spreading, there's no way to stop it when there's a few people in the same cell. At the same time, not only were they grouping inmates together for work and for other things, but the staff was also moving freely around the prison and staff was getting out as well. Uh, I traced the numbers, I actually crunched the numbers on this a few days ago, and I found out that the spike in cases in Marin shortly followed the spike in cases Huh. in in quentin so huh. so whatever happens in prisons and this is why we all need to care about this not just because of the people behind bars but because of all of us because the staff is this there's staff that works in these prisons and then they're going back into right they go home they eat they shop on the way you know whatever it is that they do they're spreading the infection and we're seeing both in marin and in lassen counties these spikes in infections in the community closely following the spikes in the prison. Okay. At that point, a group of doctors from UCSF, from an organization called AMEND that works with prisons, went inside Quentin. This was in mid-June. And they were horrified by what they saw. What did they see? So first of all, they saw that there wasn't any kind of medical treatment to speak of for most people. They were just checking vitals. They weren't treating people properly. There were still transfers that were really dangerous being done. Uh, staff was not cohorted, meaning that the staff would do shifts every time with different people. So increasing the risk of contagion. Uh, inmates were not necessarily uh, 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 cohorted either. So uh -huh. people would be, you know, thrown with, with different people. Uh -huh. And which is really important, what they used to isolate people when they had to isolate people for medical reasons was they would move them either to death row or tell them that they were going to move them into death row or move them into uh, solitary confinement. Now, neither of those places is a nice place. And Wait. by doing that, they frightened people and people stopped cooperating. People stopped wanting to get tested okay, and okay. stopped reporting systems. Okay, so to be clear, they told people when they had symptoms of this that if they had symptoms, they had to be moved into solitary confinement or death row. Exactly. Both of which are not places where prisoners want to be. Exactly. They basically confused medical isolation with these kinds of punitive places to be. And therefore, they've really decreased people's cooperation. So people don't want to get tested. People don't want to report systems because there's always the threat that they're going to end up in these really scary places. And they weren't forcing people to get tested? No, nobody's getting forced to get tested. People can refuse to get tested. Do you think they should all be tested forcibly? I think people have a right to get treated or not to get treated. You can't force a, a Q-tip up somebody's nose. Right, but obviously not physically force them. But if, if, you're, be if you're, you're being forced to spend your, all your days in close quarters with people, don't you think 
if, if people are not comfortable getting, if not everyone gets tested, isn't it going to make it hard to isolate the virus? Well, of course, but people, what you basically need in a situation like this is buy-in from the community, right? It's the same thing that we're seeing with the masks, right? The more people wear masks, the more right. people are going to wear the masks. Right. And just for you can't viewers, get... we are six feet away, which is why <laughs> I'm not wearing a mask, but obviously wear your mask at all times, wear them. So when you want to procure buy-in from the community, you want to communicate a message or convey the message to people that you care about what's going on with them and you want to help. And what the inmates are constantly seeing from the system is exactly the opposite. What you want to guarantee in a situation like this is buy-in from the community. And when people from the inside are seeing that their concerns are being trivialized, that they're not being treated well, that they're being threatened with punitive measures for being sick, of course they're not going to cooperate. Is that, a, that one is, is one of the major problems. And in fact, the doctors write in the report, we just saw that people were terrified. And that's one of the things that has to be addressed in a proper plan. Got it. So people were terrified of getting tested, and you need to address that. Um, do we know now, though, what percentage of the prison has been tested? Yes and no, because CDCR reports in a very confusing way. Gosh. So CDCR has a statistical tool which reports the levels of contagion, new cases, deaths, cases resolved, everything. You can look it up online, just Google CDCR COVID-19 and, and you'll get all the data. And that's the California Department of Corrections? And Rehabilitation. And Rehabilitation, very right. important. So, uh, so CDCR is reporting the numbers, but it's reporting them in a very confusing way. So for example, they'll tell you that in the last 14 days, they've tested 55% of the population. Uh -huh. But there's no way for you to know whether they're retesting again and again the same 55 uh -huh. or whether they're testing different sections of the prison. Okay. And this is another important thing, that if you're not doing proper social distancing and isolation and taking care of people, if you tested people last week and they tested negative, that's meaningless today because they could be positive today. So there has to be continuous testing and that has not been happening. Okay, so I posted about this. So the story broke a couple weeks ago and People were very upset. I mean, what are we going to do? They were very nervous about it. And since then, the numbers have just kind of steadily increased and more people are caring about it. Um, caring about it. I posted online and said, this is, you know, this is cruel and unusual. We cannot, these people are stuck and um, there's a virus going around. It's killing people. And I got some pushback. People were saying, you know, why are, why are so many people focusing on a prison where there are convicted murderers and rapists and all that inside and not on essential workers or folks who are working in restaurants who are forced to get their jobs? So why should people care so much about what's happening in a high security prison? I'm glad you brought this up because there's a few issues here that, uh, that we need to talk about. The first one has to do with this idea that there's somehow a zero-sum game, that if you focus on people in prison, then you're somehow not focusing on other people. Right. So as I like to call this argument, for heaven's sake, will nobody think of the children, right? It's th this idea that, you know, we have to focus on these people or on these people. Right. That's not how a virus works. A virus transmits between people. The virus doesn't know where the gates of the prison are. The virus doesn't read the California Penal Code. If people get sick in prison, we're incubating the, vir the virus inside the prison. All of these efforts that all these folks behind you are doing, all the masks and the social distancing and staying home, all of these sacrifices are completely worthless if we have dozens of petri dishes around the state and there's people going in and out of them every day. As I explained before, when we see spikes in prisons, those spikes are closely followed by spikes in the community. So if people in prison get sick, no matter what you think about them, that means you and your loved one are at increased danger. So to care for everybody, you have got to first care about the people that are grouped together and can't really avoid going out. I should say another thing, which is also that every life has worth. 
and that all the people that are doing time in California prisons are doing time that, were, that was uh, uh, given to them according to the California Penal Code. The California Penal Code didn't sentence anybody to die of a virus, to die of abuse, of medical neglect, even the folks that are on death row. And this is another interesting twist to this because we actually have a moratorium in California. So we're not actually executing people. There are still people on death row. And for decades, we had been litigating these cases to the tune of billions of dollars. You know, what's an appropriate way to kill people that's not cruel and unusual, right? One drug, three drugs, this drug, that drug, billions of dollars of litigation. What for? So that they could die via a virus? More people have died of this disease under Governor Newsom's moratorium than have been executed in California in the entire century. Wait a second. I think that bears repeating. Can you say that one more time? More people have died from this disease under Governor Newsom's moratorium than have been actually executed by the state in the entire century. And this is the moratorium on the death penalty? This is the moratorium on the death penalty. And that's how 33 people, right? That's at this point, well, on death row, it's about eight or nine folks at this point. But 33 people have died in our prison system from COVID-19. Yes, exactly. Wow, this really feels bungled. This really feels like it's been totally messed up. It's totally messed up. And the time to do something about it that would really be comprehensive and prevent a human rights catastrophe was March 1st. Was March 1st. So people were starting to, t people are starting to talk about this in the last few weeks because of the outbreak. But my colleagues and I have been talking about this for months. So let's talk about Governor Newsom's plan that he released on Friday. So it's Monday right now. So there's been a couple days on, uh, of the plan that Governor Newsom has released to address this issue. And you had some strong words for the plan. Um, I'm going to let you talk. I'm going to go through each of your points and let you explain them. So sure. the first thing was that the plan was doing too little. Yes. So can you, can you talk about how the plan does too little? So, so far before this, uh, before this uh, uh, statement by the governor, the governor had released two small batches of people, 3,500, uh, actually one small batch, 3,500 people. Out of how, many, how many total people are in our prison system? Overall, 120,000. So 3,500 out before, of 120,000. Out of 120,000. Okay. And a few more people here and there that were coming up to the end of their sentences. And now they've announced a plan where they say they're going to release up to 8,000 people. 8,000 people. Now, if you do the math, 8,000 people is 6% of the prison population. 6% is not enough to alleviate the overcrowding in these places. And again, some of these places are overcrowded to the tune of 150%. So there's one and a half times the kind of the number of people that have to be inside. If you release a few hundred people from every prison or a few thousand people, it's not going to make a difference. You're not going to even get the six feet to put between people. It's not enough. Yeah. Now, I should say, and this is important, that in some places, such as Quentin, which is a very old facility, yes. it's decrepit, it doesn't have ventilation, the doctors actually recommended the immediate release of 50% of the prison population, just so that they can get the epidemic out of, uh, uh, under control. And so where, is the, where are people being proposing putting these prisoners, that release them from San Quentin, but where do these people go? So most of these folks would go home to their families. There's tens of thousands of people who have families waiting for them on the outside. Mm -hmm. I work with a coalition that has families and loved ones. On the day that Gavin Newsom opens the prison gates, if he lets these people out, there are going to be thousands of cars with family members ready to take these people home. And the folks who don't have family members to go home to? We can find solutions for them and we should find solutions for them because keeping them in prison is endangering everybody's lives. Got it. Okay, too late. 
was another point that the Governor Newsom's plan was coming too late. Can you talk about that? Sure. So a lot of this plan is based on the idea that you would look at each person's individual case and you would look at, you know, what, what the situation is, how much risk they have, what they were convicted for, all kinds of things like that on a case-by-case -case basis, including for people over 65 with chronic or acute medical conditions. The time to do this kind of thing, going over each case, thousands right. of cases, was right. on March 1st. Right. When people like me, I did, and colleagues of mine repeatedly said that if we don't do this, the prison is going to be a mass grave. Now is not the time to do this, now is triage time. Triage. At this point, what they have to focus on is categories of people that don't pose public risk and face themselves risk and let them out. Okay, and then you said too reactive. This plan was too right. reactive. What do you mean by that? So one of the aspects of this plan is that they've identified uh, a number of people. This is undetermined by the plan, but they've identified that there is a number of people who have only about a year to serve, and they're doing time in one of the epicenters of the outbreak. So they're doing time at Quentin and, and CCI and a few other places where there's hundreds of cases. The problem is that on the day that the plan was released, which was on July 10th, the, the list was already dated. There were already new places with new outbreaks when the list came out. Now, of course it's important to get people out of harm's way in the places that already have outbreaks, but now's the time to get people out of the places that don't have outbreaks yet to prevent them from getting infected. So this plan is kind of like, it's backward looking. It's all about treating or dealing with situations where we already have the catastrophe underway, but it's not preventing the catastrophe from multiplying itself in new places. Okay, and I guess this, this is kind of a, a sad question to ask, but. And I, but I think it's something that a lot of people are asking, which is like, what happens if the virus does not get under control? I mean, you're saying that Governor Newsom's plan is too little, too late, too reactive. Um, I, you know, what if he doesn't change this plan and it is what it is and the virus does rage in our prison system? What does that lead to eventually? Well, if this would be going on, we're going to see more of what we're seeing in Quentin and other places. We're going to see large chunks of the prison population infected, perhaps close to all the prison population. We're going to see a lot more deaths. We're going to see a lot more spikes in the surrounding counties. So the announcement for today that they're shutting down, you know, restaurants and bars and all of that, completely worthless if there's people, you know, coming out of prison, staff members buying takeout on the way home right. without a mask or, or, or what have you. Right. So all of this stuff is not going to help and all of us are going to have to do this for longer, for as long as this is raging in the prisons. Okay, um, so the question I was going to ask was, you know, how do we prevent a Chino type situation again where we move prisoners to a place and then they actually bring the virus with them and create another outbreak? Well, you have to put a complete kibosh on any transfers of any kind. Okay. You just have to stop moving people between prisons, period. But you're moving them into the community. Right? So well, how do we prevent the, the COVID-positive prisoners from spreading the infection in the community? Sure, but it's much easier for you if you go home to quarantine in your house right. than it is for you to quarantine in a prison. Right. But, are, but do, you, do you think there should be some kind of like monitoring or... Um, contact tracing that There happens. could be. If we were serious about public health, we could do it. But I also want to specify that given the fact that we're talking about a population that's in close quarters and you sort of know who's doing a shift with whom, right. if we haven't been able to do contact tracing up, up to this point, it's very unlikely that we'll be able to start it going forward. Got it. So you also said that Governor Newsom's plan was too restrictive. That was the last two. So, so why is his plan too restrictive? So reading the plan, you can see that in a lot of situations, they're limiting the releases to people that are the kind of people we call uh, the non-non-nons. 
non-violent, non-serious, non-sexual offenders. And the assumption, presumably, is that violent, what they so-called violent people are more of a risk to public safety. Right. I've actually seen a lot of this in the comments on the newspaper articles, people saying, let the non-violent people go. Some of this comes from just misconceptions, and these are misconceptions on the right and on the left. The right hasn't cornered the market on this, that there's lots of non-violent drug offenders in prison and we have to get rid of them. This is not true. Most of the people in doing time in state prisons is doing time for violent crime. But there is a big chunk of people in California, I'm talking about a quarter, a full quarter of our prison population, who are people who are aged 50 and older and mm -hmm. have been in prison for decades. Mm -hmm. Because they're serving these long sentences, obviously they're serving them for violent crime. So when you read a, sort of one of those misleading newspaper articles and they're saying Governor Newsom is letting murderers out, yeah. right? The murderer could be somebody who is in their 60s and has diabetes and high sugar and was convicted for murder 40 years ago. And mm -hmm. they've been in prison for four decades. Mm -hmm. Everything we know, and there's a robust body of research on this, is that people age out of violent crime. So a person in their 50s is no longer a risk to public safety. They're going outside and they don't reoffend. This is one of the reasons when I wrote my book, Yesterday's Monsters, I interviewed parole officers and they consistently said that they prefer to be working with released lifers because these people don't give them any grief. They go out, they go to their families, they right. find a job, they right. find a place to live and right. they don't give anybody any trouble. These are exactly the people we should release. The problem is that there's a fear that there's going to be this huge public backlash if we start releasing people convicted for violent crimes. And this is another very important myth that I want to dispel. There's this misconception that if you did a more dangerous crime, then you're more dangerous. There is actually, and I'm going to say this twice because it's really important, okay. there is no correlation between the crime of commitment and risk to public safety. So there is no correlation between the crime you were convicted for and what kind of a risk you pose to public safety. Even if, you're, if, even if you were just put in, I mean, I get the argument that if you've committed a violent crime and you've been in prison for 40 years and you're aged and infirm, you're not more violent. But if someone commits a violent crime, that person is not more risky to, if that person is released like the next year or two, they're not more? So you cross these dangerous. numbers, you triangulate the numbers, and okay. you will find a considerable population. I'm talking about tens of thousands of people. Yeah. A full quarter of the California prison population is doing people doing life sentences. Okay. So about a quarter, and about a quarter of the of the California prison population are people who are 50 and older. There is a huge overlap between those two groups. If I were putting on my public health glasses, trying to figure out who am I going to let out, yeah, these would be the classic people I would want to let out because these are people that don't pose a public health risk. They themselves face a public health risk right. from being inside. Right, and this is over 50. You, you gave it a couple things. You said that there were over 50. They were um, in prison aging for decades. Yes, aging and infirm, and in prison for decades. Those are not folks that pose a risk to public safety. And any true public health plan that doesn't pay attention to public backlash and unfounded hysteria should prioritize these folks. So, Hadar, where do we go from here? We have. 100,000 people still in our prison system in California. We have 2,000 people in a prison just north of San Francisco. We have people dying on death row and in the prison system. We have a governor who is progressive and, and, and has run on criminal justice reform, but has a plan that you say uh, is too little, too late, too reactive, and too restrictive. I mean, what's your prediction of what's going to happen? And if we had this conversation again, you know, in a month on the lavender couch in Dolores Park, what do you think we're going to be talking about with this? Well, I, my hope is that we would be talking about how we pressured the governor into releasing more people, which is exactly what we need to continue doing. We have 
to press on. It is crucial not to let our guard down. It's important to keep in mind that even this, re this planned release of 8,000 people is the result of relentless pressure that activists and advocates have put on the governor. We just had a press conference a day before this plan was announced. We've been hounding the governor on social media, writing letters, making phone calls. You can do the same thing. It doesn't matter how you feel about prisoners themselves because this is stuff that concerns everybody. Call the governor, hound them on social media, hashtag stop San Quentin outbreak, follow us, do whatever you can to release more people safely into their homes so that we can all be safer. So it's hashtag stop San Quentin outbreak. Exactly. Um, if people want to contact the governor, do you just go to, uh, what's the best like method to do that? And actually we'll, we'll also provide people an opportunity to do that. But but right now, if the, what, is there a person that they should contact? Is there an office they should go to? Call the office of the governor, tweet at the governor, tweet, tweet at, at governor. Gavin Newsom, at CA governor. Uh -huh. Just let the governor know that this is a good start, but it is not nearly enough and we need a lot more. Got it. Professor Hadar Aviram, thank you so much for spending some time with me on the Lavender Couch here outside in Dolores Park in San Francisco's Jewel. Um, you know, we have the privilege of having this conversation here with lots of options and I think so often um, we forget that a society is judged on how it treats its most vulnerable and we have to remember that, especially as Californians and as San Franciscans, that right now we are being tested by how we are going to treat the most vulnerable among us. And like you said, uh, every life is worth is worthy and worthwhile and we need to be thinking about these lives and how we're taking care of them as well because they are part of our society. They're human beings and we need to be we need to be looking after them as well. For everybody who is on the fence on this and is trying to think, you know, does my compassion stretch enough to sort of accommodate these people or thinking about them in terms of us and them, I, I like to tell, and I told this story at a press conference, it's an old Cherokee story about a grandfather who tells his son, inside each of us there are two wolves. There's a kind wolf and there's an evil wolf and they're constantly fighting each other. And the grandson asks his grandfather, Grandpa, who wins? Which wolf wins? And he says, the one you choose to feed. So I'm going to call on everybody to feed the right wolf and to keep pressing on for everybody, behind bars and outside bars, in the community, going out to the community. Everybody deserves health and safety. All right, well, to feeding the kind wolf. Thank you so much, Professor Aviram. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. We just finished our conversation with Professor Aviram here on the Lavender Couch in Dolores Park. I learned a lot. It was a sobering conversation, and now it's time for the break room. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash Manny's break room, that's tinyurl.com slash Manny's break room, you can join the conversation um, about what we just heard, and we're going to talk about how you can be involved in helping these folks inside the prison system. So how you can listen to the kind wolf inside of you, and we're going to give you some specific action items and action steps that you can take to advocate for the people who are dying in our prison system. Also, I should mention that Manny's is currently being completely funded by donors and sponsors like you who are helping us continue to provide the civic programming for the community. So if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Manny's, just go to tinyurl.com slash supportmanny's. That's tinyurl.com slash supportmanny's to become a sponsor. We need your help and we appreciate your support in this time of crisis. Thank you so much and we'll see you in the break room. <laughs>